Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day. It is, I don't know, what day is it? Is it Wednesday? It's not not Tuesday anymore. It's Wednesday. It's a very Tuesday Wednesday. Wednesday. It's a very Tuesday. It's so strange to me. I actually wrote Tuesday at the top of my notes today. It's Wednesday, September the 4th. Um, And you are listening to Mornings with Carmen. And I do know that it's Wednesday because we had Memorial Day, which was on Monday. And that made Monday, Tuesday, or Tuesday, Monday. I don't know. It's so confusing. we We had Labor Day on Monday. Yes, we did. It was so great, right? You slept. Yeah, I did. That's Bill English. Bill English is already in the house. He's <laughs> just go ahead and bring him on. Hi, man. Hey, man. How are or woman? How are you? <laughs> You're supposed to be like, whoa, man. That's right. Whoa. Remember, Adam declares in the garden when he sees Eve. The reason we're called woman is he's like, whoa, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't we're think the uh, I'm allowed the, to say that. The, the linguistics really. And never, never mind. Well, we're going to have a conversation uh, about linguistics here in just a minute and how you pronounce. Uh, the the name of the daughter of Saul. Uh, David is part of Saul's family, having married Saul's daughter. And we're going to talk about whether or not you pronounce her name, Michael, Michelle, or Mikkel. Mikkel. And if you, if you would like to weigh in on that, um, I don't know how you're going to phonetically communicate with me over either ZipWhip, which is our little text line, which you can always text me at 877-933-2484. And somehow there, tell me phonetically which way you think it's supposed to be said. <laughs> that sounds fun. Okay. So, um, hey, I got to do one headline before Bill and I actually have our conversation. If you um, have not been paying attention to this unfolding story in Mississippi, there's a wedding venue in Mississippi that rejected an interracial couple um, based on, quote unquote, Christian belief. Now, that wedding venue has uh, has since apologized. Um, and and there is this like process of uh, of a person actually. Learning uh, about what the Bible says about race and and in terms of, you know, every single one of us standing on equal footing at creation and equal footing at the cross and equal footing in the kingdom and that there will be. Uh, representation in the kingdom of God of every tribe and nation under heaven. And so, um, obviously, uh, if you have read the book of Philemon, um, you know that uh, that the kingdom of God is is constituted of people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds and life experiences and certainly skin pigmentations. And so, it is time. You have you have heard enough conversations here on air with enough people like the Hottie Lewis and Justin Gibney and Jamar Tisby, and the list is actually pretty long. Um, today's the day to get out there and be an advocate. Uh, th- today's the day to be actively anti-racist. Here is a headline news story where someone is saying that um, it is okay to be racist and that that is a primary Christian belief. Okay, that's not true. That is not true. In fact, it's it's the opposite of truth. It's a lie. And and, and you got to get out there. Today's the day you're going to press yourself into this conversation. 
because Jesus Christ himself is being misrepresented by those who would claim that this is a Christian belief. And so uh, we got we to gotta set the record straight in the culture. We have to do so with, with certainly kindness and humility, but we also have to do so with strength. Today's the day to advocate um, on this particular front. Okay, next up, we're going to continue our uh, leadership lessons we learned from the life of David with Bill English from Bible and Business. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 20. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Returning to our conversation, which is like this ongoing dialogue with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com about the leadership lessons we learn from the life of David. Hey, welcome back. Hey, thank you. Glad to be back. Hey, if people go to BibleandBusiness.com, what, what kinds of things are they going to find there? Oh, my gosh. They're going to find uh, embryonic versions of my book <laughs> <laughs> that I am writing at glacial speeds. Uh, they're going to find, but you know, one of the things they're going to find is an opportunity to uh, join a CEO group or a, a business owners group. Uh, I'm not sure how we're going to constitute that yet, but I've been trying to get a group of business owners together so that I can, uh, how do I say this, prove the model, right? Because at Bible and Business, I have an, a Christian business reference architecture out there that basically says, if you're going to run a business God's way, here's the things that you need to consider, not only from a practical standpoint, uh, but but a spiritual standpoint as well. And I'd, I'd love to get a group of business owners together to try the material out and have them implement what I've been learning from the Lord over the last 10 years or 12 years and have them implement it in their business and see if it really doesn't improve their marriages, their families, their businesses, their employee relations, their customer relations, that kind of thing. So I've been trying to find uh, some business owners to do a group like that. And uh, that's one of the things that they will find out there. All right. Very cool. And, All right. Oh, so, and, and by the mm-hmm. way, if if they are liking this um, this series on the leadership lessons from the life of David, the PowerPoints that I use to initially teach this at church are also available for download for free. So, very cool. That's so great. All right. Yeah. So remember, you can go to Bibleandbusiness.com and you can like get what we're talking about today. Uh, we are in First Samuel chapter 20. Let's just review what happens there. Okay. First Samuel 20, there's a new moon feast that Saul is going to throw or a banquet in, in respect for the new moon feast. And David is supposed to be there. Now, David is described in other parts of Samuel as having like the wisdom of an angel, I think is the phrase that that, that is used. And David suspects that Saul is going to once again try to kill him. We've talked about this now for for several weeks. And so David goes to Jonathan and basically says, look, I don't want to show up because I don't want to die. And Jonathan says, my dad doesn't do anything without telling me he's not going to kill you. He hasn't said anything to me. David says, I'm not feeling so good about this. And so David decides to give Jonathan a story. Uh, He had to go to his family in order to attend some kind of an annual feast, and that's why he isn't going to be able to attend the new moon feast. Jonathan uh, basically lies to his dad and says David isn't here because uh, he's with his family. Saul gets extremely angry. In fact, he gets so angry that he tries to kill Jonathan because he thinks Jonathan is siding with David against him. 
Saul is unsuccessful at killing Jonathan. Jonathan and David meet. They realize that this relationship between David and Saul is over. It's kaput. You're never going to put it back together. And they weep very hard because they know that their parting is probably the last time the two of them will see each other. And uh, and they part. And uh, that's where basically 1 Samuel 20 ends. That's, that's really a quick summary of 1 Samuel 20. Do you have a favorite part of this story, when like something that always stands out in your mind? Uh, when they're crying and saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Right? It's so, I mean, this is intimate friendship. This is the yeah. real deal. Yeah, it's it's the real deal. And I see this in ministry. I'm sure you do, too. I see this in ministry a lot. You'll see missionaries who are great friends go two, three, four, five years without seeing each other. And they just cry when they meet and they cry when they leave. You know, I'm thinking there, Paul, on the on the beach in Ephesus, right? There's that tremendous scene with the Ephesian elders. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like so similar, right? When you're, When you're parting ways. When God knits our hearts together in ministry, there is a bond there that is very deep and visceral and intimate. And when we leave, it's really tough. It's really I think, tough. I think this is the scene when um, when Eugene Peterson uh, entitles the the book Leap Over a Wall, which talks about the sacrament of friendship between David and Jonathan, I think this is the scene he's referring to in the in the title. Um, anyway, it's uh, this is this is powerful. First Samuel twenty, just a it's a powerful chapter about um, about real friendship, what it looks like for the heart of one person to be knit to the heart of another, and and to do so and to live in such a way that's just genuinely sacrificial. Um, Jonathan is is a sacrificial friend um, in this. And, and this friendship points beyond itself to, to some kingdom realities. And I think we need to always remember that as well. Um, so let's take a quick break. When we come back, um, we're going to, we've got some listener feedback about how we're supposed to pronounce the name of uh, Saul's daughter to whom David is married. And so Deborah, who is listening to us, has offered up an answer to the question. And I will read that right when we come back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm talking with Bill English about the leadership lessons we can learn from the life of David. In Hebrew, you construct a word with uh, what we would call three consonants. So they're tetamograms, right? No? Three? Three syllables? No. So, yeah. So, well, that's why we say, you know, there's this ineffable tetemogram, right? There's the one that you're not allowed to say. And that's Yahweh. Like, wait, we add those vowels in and then we say it anyway. But the Jews didn't. So that was four syllables. And so that was a really unique Hebrew word because most of them only have three. So what we know is that Saul's daughter is M-K-L. I mean, in terms of the but what we don't know is how many syllables that is, because we don't really know where the stops should be. And the vowel pointing comes in very late. So I am going to go with Deborah's um, contribution here, which uh, recognizes that the, there would be a Hebrew pronunciation of this. And it's either Mikael or Mikael, but probably some variation of that, remembering that what it really means is who is like God. So, Bill, say it any way you want. Who did David marry? Mikael. Mikael. Nice. I'll go, I'll go with Mikael. Okay. So. What do you want to say? What do you want to say about that? About the marriage? 
Well, I don't know. Where do you want to go from here in the conversation? I think leaders, uh, Jonathan and David represent a situation where, at least from a leadership perspective, where leaders need deeply personal friendships who understand their leadership challenges as well Mm -hmm. as the inner world of what a leader goes through. Uh, Jonathan got it. Jonathan was a good leader in and of himself. If if you actually read through the scriptures, he won battles. He did a lot of things that uh, I think he was just as competent as David was. It's just that he didn't have God's call. God Mm. didn't want him in that position of being a king for whatever reason. And in his humility, he was able to submit himself to David. But boy, leaders need deeply personal friendships. And I got to tell you, from working with a lot of business owners, most business owners are really isolated people. They are islands. They don't have anybody that they can talk to. And they don't really seek out friendships or relationships where they can get intimate and be able to talk to somebody. And I think that's a real, that's a real danger uh, for business owners and for ministry leaders. So um, I am familiar with... Uh, you know, efforts like C12 and Convene and Pinnacle Forum. This is obviously a real need. And, you know, and you're talking about um, a CEO forum that folks can join in BibleBusiness.com. Um, there, uh, this is a felt need. People know this instinctively. And I think that the question that we want to just lift up to people is, who is your Jonathan? Yeah. And and maybe you are a Jonathan, in, in which case the the conversation goes the other way. Who is your David? Right. I mean, this was a real friendship. This was not just a one way, like, let me use this guy kind of uh, I need, you know, not not David saying I need Jonathan for what Jonathan can do for me. Um, This is a real heart level relationship that um, that's that's significant in both directions. So if you are Jonathan, who is your David and what does it look like to, you know, subordinate to, to lead from what I would call the second chair? Right. Um, and then if you're David, if you're, you know, if you are the recognized leader of an organization, who is your Jonathan? Like, this is essential in terms of uh, of recognizing that we are not lone rangers and we're not meant to just go it alone. And it goes against the, uh, you know, pull myself up by my own bootstraps mentality where I'm, I, I'm going to build this thing by myself and I'm going to rely on myself and I believe in myself and everything is about me. Uh, that's not how the scriptures portray leadership, and that's not how I think God portrays business ownership or ministry leadership. You are absolutely right, Carmen. We have to be in relationship with other people, and uh, you can be both. By the way, one other thing, you can be both a David and a Jonathan. So you might be leading an organization and have a Jonathan within your organization or outside of it. In another sense, you might become someone else's Jonathan as they lead their organization or their project or their business. So you can be both. So my Jonathan uh, is is probably Jessica. So there you go. Jessica is probably listening right now. So there you go. Thank you. I acknowledge uh, I acknowledge the Jonathan nature of, uh, of our friendship. Um, Bill, when we talk about um, this, the personal nature of this. Yes. Um, there are a number of things that Jonathan provides. Talk about what Jonathan provides in in this relationship with David. Well, in 1 Samuel 20, it, what, what you can pull away from there is that first he provided a larger picture, a larger 
context around David that David could then understand. Remember, he says, my dad doesn't do anything without talking to me first. And so Jonathan was able to provide to David context, insight about what Saul was thinking and planning to do. And even Jonathan, I think, was taken aback here by the strength of Saul's anger and the fact that Saul tried to kill him. I think that was an unexpected piece for Jonathan, but he was able to provide that larger picture. The other thing that he provided to David was this buffer protection piece where Jonathan stood up to Saul on behalf of David, uh, again, to the point where Saul tried to kill him. And uh, lastly, I think he... um, He really provided love and support because he knew David's call, he supported David's call, and he uh, had covenanted with David that he would would be his greatest fan, so to speak. And uh, he liked uh, the trajectory that God had David on, and Jonathan fully supported it. And to me, that love and support is just visceral to their friendship. This um, this truth that we do need people to validate our sense of call. Yes. Um, We can know we're called to something. We can have a very strong sense of that. But then circumstances can move in a a way that, wow, lead us to doubt or hesitate or be uncertain. We need people uh, who can see who we are and what we're called to be and do, um, and then for them to step up and validate that. Uh, Encourage people to, to offer that in one another's lives today. Yes, please do, because if Satan could could get at uh, all of us who know our calls and give 50% of us to doubt it and back away from it, he could really do damage to the church at large. Uh, Without people fulfilling their calls, the church doesn't move forward. Yeah, and that means that every part needs to do its part. Yes. And every every person, you know, not everybody can be the mouth or the eyes or the ears uh, or the hands. But everybody does have a role and a responsibility to play. And there really is no lesser part in terms of, uh, I mean, if the body of Christ didn't have people out there who were the feet of it, um, it would get nowhere, right? right it would, right. yeah. And so um, I think that we we tend to imagine that the person at the head of the organization, although important, we tend to also imagine that they are the most important. And there's really equal importance when it comes to the various parts of the body, And Jonathan is equally important here to the unfolding story of God's will in human history um, and and understanding who he is and how he needs to validate and support David in David's call. Right. Stratification of importance in organizations is an American, I, I dare say, potentially sinful construct that the Bible does not support. Interesting. So interesting. All right. Hey, uh, thank you so much. That is Bill English. You can check out what he's doing at BibleandBusiness.com. You can download the lessons that we are talking about uh, from the leadership, uh, the leadership lessons from the life of King David. You can get those there. You can also check out what he's doing with CEO forums and all kinds of other great stuff. Hey, Bill, thanks so much. Hey, thank you. Have a good day. You too. We'll be right back. When the road rough ahead. All right, next up, uh, Nick Pitts is joining us. I know that normally he joins us on Monday mornings, but we didn't do Monday morning because we had Labor Day, and so now it's Wednesday, and Nick is graciously joining us. You can find him at thebriefing.net. He and I are going to talk about Hurricane Dorian. Uh, We are going to talk about Harry Potter books being removed from a school due to curses and spells that are real. 
Uh, we may get to uh, Walmart asking shoppers to leave their guns at home and, uh, and, and maybe even a story about the prediction that 25% of all colleges in America are going to fail in the next 20 years. Wow. All right. Is your alma mater on that list? Up next here on Mornings with Carmen. No parent wants to see a child bring home an ugly report card. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Okay, not every student will earn straight A's, but if your teen is failing to follow through on basic responsibilities, like completing homework on time or showing up to class, it's time to deliver some consequences. Let him know that from now on he'll lose privileges when he misses assignments or when his grades drop. A few weeks without a cell phone or video games can go a long way in teaching responsibility. Hey, I know it's hard to step back and let your teen face the outcome of his actions, but believe me when I say he'll be thanking you later. Your son doesn't need to be the valedictorian, but he needs to practice the basic disciplines of learning. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Nick Pitts from the Institute for Global Engagement. You can check out what he is doing every single day at thebriefing.net if you're not already, uh, you know, like getting the news you can use from Nick. That's how you do it, thebriefing.net. All right, Nick, hey, welcome back. Hey, so good to be with you, Carmen. How are you? Thanks. I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for joining us on Wednesday. It's kind of unusual for us. I know. I know. I'm having to readjust and recalibrate right now. That's good. That's good. Okay, so let's uh, let's lead off with where you lead off this morning's briefing, and that is with Hurricane Dorian. Um, why don't you, you know, I think the, most of us um, have at least some sense of the devastation in the Bahamas, but it's, I mean, it's a level of destruction that we certainly have not seen um, on this scale. We we saw Mexico Beach really, really shredded um, last year, but in terms of the scope of the destruction, this is just really extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, you've got uh, uh, the Bahamas, sixty uh, percent uh, of their GDP comes from tourism, and now the reality is three out of every four homes on Grand Bahama are underwater right now. They experienced waters that reached as high as twenty-three feet on islands, and just they find themselves. Uh, I think a line that has stuck in my mind from the briefing this morning is it said the quote, the ocean became in effect a bulldozer. And so now, I mean, we still are, there's just so little communication that's happened right now because we're still in the midst of this tragedy. But what we do know is that UN officials said that more than 60,000 people on the islands are going to need food. The Red Cross said approximately 62,000 people will need clean drinking water. This tragedy is still unfolding. I mean, there's been just these epic words that have been utilized like catastrophe, disaster, smithereens to describe what's happened there. But right now, all we have is just all we have really is we're realizing our helplessness and just this the sense of we need something to happen, but we don't know what yet. And so as people of faith, it's just increasingly important for us to be prayerful, one, and then two, to figure out how best we can uh, help. And there's a variety of organizations that stand ready and and capable of being able to help in this desperate time of need. 
And there really is, you know, there there's always an opportunity for those of us who are you know, geographically uh, separated enough from the event that it did not affect us, um, you know, where we live. But there are ways that we can then engage in being those who come alongside and render either aid um, or relief. And so I do think and and we're not just doing that as like an alleviation of our guilt. We're doing it out of a genuine love for people who are in a circumstance that uh, help literally has to come from the outside. Oh, yeah. So, Carmen, that's one of the things that I alluded to this morning in the briefing. So for many of your listeners, they probably remember some of those first images that were coming out of Vietnam and just how gripping they were, how how much the moving images out of Vietnam changed the perception, because those there's something about pictures that has the propensity to change something within us. And what we're finding now with uh, uh, new social science research is that these images have a propensity to do one of two things. When we see these images from natural disasters, one, they can either induce a sense of guilt, like there's just so much bad that's happening. I feel so guilty that I'm in this place of, uh, of, of goodness and I'm able to read this from my air conditioned home in the midst of summer, which isn't experiencing any trauma or we can or we can uh, not allow guilt to be able to set in, but rather allow gratitude to be able to seep into our very being. And what they found is that gratitude compels this sense of generosity within individuals. And so this morning, I'm sure many of your listeners probably have some sense of guilt that they're weighing right now as they see the devastation that is beginning to we're beginning to learn about in the Bahamas. But don't let the guilt keep you from being able to be generous and have that sense of gratitude because the technology that's able to stream pictures to us and this video to us, the devastation, is also the same technology that has the propensity to allow us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this time of need. Okay, let's pivot to um, let's pivot to another story. The second thing, the second story that you have posted today at thebriefing.net is about Kroger. Kroger is a grocery store. For those of you who don't live in the part of the country that has a Kroger, um, uh, Kroger is joining Walmart. Everybody has Walmart in asking shoppers to leave guns at home. What's going on here? Yeah, I, you know, first off, let's just, I'm shocked that I thought Kroger was the center of the world growing up. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, like, uh, my Well, papa, yeah, uh, but now now you're in Texas. Is it not HEB? Uh, yeah, HEB yeah. in certain areas, but still, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you can take the boy out of Kroger, but you can't. Take so, the Kroger people in the Twin the Cities, the people in the Twin Cities, they have these grocery stores where um, you, you don't even take your, there's no carts out in the parking lot. You walk in, you do your shopping. It is beautiful. The store is beautiful. And then they pack all of your groceries and then you go out to your car and then you drive through this like heated tunnel thing where they load your bags into your vehicle. We don't have this in the South. Is Twin Cities called heaven? Is that the heaven? It, is doesn't that heaven? that sound totally amazing? So the yeah, Byerly. So the first time I was in town, I like went to the you know, first of all, it was hard for me to find a grocery store because there's no carts in the parking lot. Like when you're driving down the road, as you identify a grocery store, it's because you're like scanning the parking lot, right? Oh, grocery carts. I could go there and get some groceries. No, no, they don't have that. So it looked like like a furniture store. So anyway, I go in. It's lovely. It's beautiful. And then I'm done, and the guy's like, Oh no, 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 ma'am. You, we're just go just go get your car. I'm like, what? What? I don't take them with me? He's like, no, 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 no. And so he explained the whole process. Anyway, it's kind of amazing. Anyway, that is not... uh, Can I raise another grocery cart issue just here briefly? (laughs) Of course. 
Okay, there needs to be a rule that people don't take their dogs to the grocery store and then put them in the cart. I'm going to put my food in that cart. I don't want your That's, dog to have this been the last thing in the cart. Okay, so while they're while they're working on people not having guns in Kroger and Walmart, I would like some sort of effort to people not putting their pets in the grocery cart where I'm going to put my produce. We all have our stands that we're willing to make. And so, uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm willing to take it further with the with the dog and letting your dog lick you and kiss you. I just I'm just not there. But that's a <laughs> that's a whole different story. But yeah, so Kroger's decided to take a stand and they joined Walmart and they're starting to uh, they're stopping short of banning open carry of firearms where it's uh, in states like Ohio and Kentucky where it's legal. But they have said that they're going to they're asking individuals to stop carrying their firearms there, uh, firearms into stores. This joins Walmart, which made a declaration also, which stopped, uh, it, which announced it's going to stop selling ammunition. And obviously, this is a part of a larger conversation relative to gun violence here in the U.S. And what, what we're finding is what we've always seen to be true over the past three or four years is that corporations are starting to take a responsibility and starting to play a role. If Congress isn't going to act the way they want it to, uh, these corporations and free market society have a ability and agency to be able to exercise their rights uh, in order to be able to enact their agenda. Uh, and But what we continue to see is that there's not going to be a silver bullet to stop every bullet. The numerous studies are going to detail that there's going to have to be a variety of measures to help us better understand and get to a place where we can eradicate this gun violence that continues to plague the U.S. And research is clearly showing that there's a variety of different ways where it's 30% here when it comes to violent video games. And then the most powerful predictor of this violence is families. And so how do we shore up this depressing statistic that 41% of families, 41% of children today are born into unwed families. So there's a variety of measures that are going to be need to be taken. And certain corporations like Kroger and Walmart are taking one of those measures. All right, we're going to take a break, and then Nick Pitts and I are going to talk about what I think is one of the spiciest headlines of the day. Uh, mm. Harry Potter books. All right, we've got Nick Pitts. You can check out what he's doing at thebriefing.net. Nick, we have got Harry Potter books that have been removed. Um, you can no longer check them out of the library at uh, at a particular parish school. Now, that does not actually surprise me. It might surprise me that they were ever in the library of a, of a Roman Catholic school. Um, but this part of the email is the what I want to talk about, and you, um, you included in the briefing today. These books, we're talking here about the seven-book series, uh, Harry Potter series, um, the books present magic as both good and evil, which is not true, but in fact a clever deception. Now, what what the um, what Reverend Dan Rehill is is stating there is that magic is always bad. Like, right, we're talking here about yeah. dark arts. We're talking right. So then the next sentence, though, is the one that I want to um, I want to be sure people don't miss. The curses and spells used in the books are actual curses and spells which when read by a human being risk conjuring evil spirits into the presence of the person reading the text. Now, the only way that they can arrive at that is if they had a, a, a legit exorcist um, like way in. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I as 
uh, as you kind of mentioned, I, I was shocked by the tone and tenor of the email, but specifically that line was, it was pretty interesting just because again, like I understand if you're not going to have Harry Potter, like I have, I've, there were many of my parents, fr uh, friends that decided that they weren't going to allow their children to read Harry Potter. But I never have heard the line that they actually thought they were actual curses and spells, which was, which is, I guess, one interpretation of reading it. But the idea of risking conjuring up evil spirits into the presence, reading the text, that, that's a that's a whole nother level that I was unaware of. Right. Me, too. I'm, I, I mean, like you, I have been privy to the ongoing conversation since the first Harry Potter book came out about, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, it was something that. Christians families were going to embrace Christian schools yeah. were going to talk about like right because it was it, it, and it's I mean it's now it's now a cultural franchise I mean it's just so I I appreciate what the the questions that you lift up though because what we consider what might have been considered magic in prior generations you know we now consider science mm -hmm. yeah so Alan Jacobs out of Baylor University has done just some uh, as is always the case. He's just done a, uh, an amazing job of kind of giving a cultural analysis of what was happening in the Harry Potter series. And Jacobs points out that both magic and experimental science are means of controlling and directing our natural environment. So what we now call experimental science was once magic. So Arthur Clarke even illuminates this, and he says that any smoothly functioning technology gives the appearance of magic. So essentially what J.K. Rowling is doing is she's using magic to create another world in which Harry has the opportunity to exercise moral agency, to be able to say what's right and what's wrong. And so magic isn't necessarily the point, but it is putting together, it's put in the background of creating the point of allowing children to be able to learn through fantasy and magic how to do right and wrong. Now, I understand St. Edward's at this particular point of wanting to say, well, we're just choosing not to allow magic uh, to, to be the background by which the moral being is formed. But uh, I, to go so far as to say actually reading the spells in the book is actually going to risk conjuring evil spirits is a whole other level that I, I just don't agree with. All right. So this is a provocative conversation for each and every one of us to be prepared to engage in today. Um, if you're not familiar with the Harry Potter series, like, um, you, you could just Google it um, or you could just probably ask a kid or a teenager or a young adult or somebody in their 40s, because it's actually been around long enough that a lot of people have not only read it, but they've seen the movies. Oh, yeah. And, I, the, yeah. Movies are wildly popular. I mean, we, we've got, they're in the billions of dollars one, and what we're continuing to see is that there continues to be a demand for it, whether it's through an amusement park that's going to be opening up Walt Disney World, or whether it's going to be um, uh, uh, some of the uh, paraphernalia that's happening, even on uh, Broadway right now. You've got a two-part Broadway show. That is now. So the popularity of Harry, Harry Potter. Well, is and a theme playing. park. Isn't there like yeah. a whole Harry Potter theme park now? Yeah, there's a whole Harry Potter theme park to for a new generation of individuals that want to be able to kind of allow their um, just to escape into the imaginary world of Hogwarts, um, which is just it's just a fascinating it's a fascinating move by St. Edwards. Now, for those of you who are thinking that in any way, shape, or form, Nick Pitts and I are advocating witchcraft, let, let us be clear. We recognize 
um, we recognize the reality of an enemy. We recognize the reality of spiritual forces. We recognize the witchcraft is biblically uh, absolutely forbidden. Like, we get it. We get that um, witchcraft and witches are actually Wiccan is on the rise in the American yeah. culture today. But we also recognize the need for Christians to actually be equipped to engage in a conversation. Um, and so we're not we're not advocating here that you read Harry Potter. What we are advocating is that you engage in this conversation in a way that is um, open-eyed. And so oh, yeah. when we think about technology and we think about the technology that we are willing to adapt our lives to, if you um, you know if you have adapted your life to some sort of internalized technology, um, that would have been considered magic in a prior generation. And so when we talk about the integration, let's say AI, we talk about the integration of of these kinds of things into our lives, like that's a legit conversation for us to have. Are we adapting ourselves to things in such a way that, hmm, by other definitions, that would be magic? All right. Did I lose Nick or is he just, is he pausing? Oh, there. All right. So, oh, hey. All right. So, Nick, um, you've got one more thing uh, posted today at thebriefing.net that we just don't have time to completely unpack. But you've got this experts are predicting 25 percent of colleges are going to fail in the next 20 years. Give us the uh, over and under on this. Yeah. So we've got 25 percent. One one statistic said two years ago it was upwards of 50 percent. Well, we we do have we do have a problem here in the U.S. relative to college education. You've got international students that can't make their way over because of visas. You've got a a shrinking population because the birth rate is falling down. And, and now you've got the prevalence of the Internet that's continuing to offer up uh, educational op- alternatives. And so what is going to be the value of higher education from a Christian perspective? I think it's going to be really uh, important for Christian universities to double down on their convictions and, uh, and not chase after the fads, but understand how do we see the fads and use our Christian education means in order to be able to accomplish the goodness of God through the, the extension of his kingdom. All right. You know, there are going to be institutions are slow to die and so and they're slow to fail. And so uh, this is important because we want to be investing our time and our children's futures in educational uh, processes and institutions um, that are actually delivering the goods, actually oh, yeah. providing an education that's uh, that's worthy, uh, frankly, worthy of the gospel. Hey, Nick, thank you so much. As always, people can check out okay, what he's people. doing. Yeah, at thebriefing.net. We'll be right back. All right. um, Again, today, press in, lean in, step in. Um, I know that sometimes we are resistant to imagine that the viewpoint that God has on something is something that people would be open to. But The truth is, if you and I are not pressing into the conversations of the day as people who are bearing light and winsomely wise in the culture, then that viewpoint is completely left out. And so let me just encourage you. um, I know that there are people who think, oh, gosh, what's going on over there is none of my business or what's going on with that group is none of my business. Here's here's a little perspective change for you on that. It's all God's business, right? And we are children of the king. And so we're in the father's business. I mean, if you're up to some business today that isn't the business of the father, then you need to you know, check out what you're doing. Um, but we're all in the father's business. Like this is a family enterprise uh, as the church deployed in the world today. This is God's family business. 
And so um, it's all God's business. So technically, it's all our business. So there's really your business is my business and my business is your business. And so I welcome you into my business. And uh, and don't don't have your feelings hurt when I, you know, stomp right in and say, "Mm," when you say that's not your business, I'm going to say it is the father's business. And so it's my business, too. All right. Let's bring the gospel to bear in every conversation today and uh, be sowers of peace. Have a great day and God bless. Okay, so I want you to remember that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I want you to consider today just how extraordinary it is. The God of the universe conceived of you, not just, you know, your personality, not just you as a soulish, well, disembodied soul, but you as a person in the flesh, in this time and in this space, at this point in human history, right here and right now, and deployed you intentionally as an ambassador of his kingdom, as an agent of his grace, as a child upon whom he lavishes his grace. I want you to remember today that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that means that we can enter into the world not only without fear, but with great wonder. So be an agent of, uh, of awe and wonder in the world that God so loves today. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.